0: Over the last several months, we as a church have been thinking deeply and trying to grow in the way that we think about, about the gospel. And a big part of that we've seen for I think nine, nine weeks or so now is that we have been trying to uncover and then address some of the hypocrisy in our lives ways that our lives don't don't match up to what we say that we believe about God and what we say that we believe is true with with how we really live. These inconsistencies in our lives that that we all have. I mean for example, we, we have these in all different types of our all different parts of our life. For example, many of us believe that broccoli is good for us, right? That doesn't mean we eat it. Right? You can believe that broccoli is good for you but broccoli is not going to do any good for your body unless you, unless you smother it in cheese and put it in your, or, unless, you, unless you eat it, right? Knowing true things doesn't matter if we don't act on them. If we don't act on them. And for many of us, rather for all of us who are Christians, there are ways that we do not live consistently with our faith. Ways that our life does not Match up. The things that we say with our mouths and then the things that we say with our lives are inconsistent. We say one thing and we do the other. We profess one thing, but we believe the other. There's obviously a number of problems with this, reasons that, that we get into trouble. But one of the reasons we've been highlighting in recent weeks is is that when we do this, when we drift away from the gospel, when we live inconsistently with what we say that we believe about God, it stunts our growth and it stunts our maturity as Christians because it's through the gospel of God that God intends to change us. It's through the gospel that God intends to change us. Perhaps you'll remember last week when we Saw the central command of the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 1, when, this, when Jesus came on, he came onto the scene, he came announcing the news of the kingdom, and what did he say? Two central commands uh, when he came announcing the kingdom of God. He says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time, the kingdom, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So what? Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe. These two central commands, the commands of repentance and faith, are at the very heart of the Christian life. Repent and believe the gospel. And what we've seen is that repentance and faith are not something we do on just like special occasions, right? It's not just a VBS thing. It's not just something you do when you come to faith for the first time. It's not, it's not just something even you do when you do really big, bad things, right? And feel really, really bad. But instead, we are called to repent and believe over and over again. Christ does not call us as Christians to just repent once or to just believe once. But to believe and repent Continually, These are the two repeating steps of the Christian life. Last week we saw we focused especially on the lost practice of repentance, of lifestyle repentance. Now for those of us who follow Christ, who, who claim to follow Christ, we have turned away from our sin and have turned to Christ. We have resolved to turn from our sin and to instead follow Christ. Christ. That's repentance. And repentance, we've seen, is the mark of the Christian faith. It's the membership card, really. It's the way that that we demonstrate or the way that we maintain our profession of faith by constantly, constantly, and actively, and regularly, and even daily turning away from our sin and turning to Christ, repenting and believing in the gospel turning from our sin and turning to a Savior who accepts us and forgives us. The Christian life is a constant pattern of turning from sin. We've said it like this, repent, believe, repeat. Do it again, repent, believe, repeat. It's like we're working on a conveyor belt, doing the same things over and over again as we grow. And last week, we zoomed in a little bit on the practice of repentance. And this week, and Lord willing, next week, we will now zoom in, zoom back in on the flip side of that coin, the flip side of repentance, which is faith. And we're going to have some real talk here, church. Real talk about faith, and we're going to do it specifically by talking about our idols. Our idols. Now, this may make some of your ears up, right, you may be thinking, "Come on, preacher! Right, we, I, I don't need to talk about idols. I don't have any idols in my house. I don't, I don't like, keep a Buddha on my mantle. I don't have a golden calf out, out in the backyard." Right, I've said I'm, I'm new to Tennessee. We had cows where I came from, but not this many. Right, and so you may not have, you may have a calf in the backyard, but not a golden calf, probably. I don't have a golden calf in the backyard. So why, why do we need to talk about idols? Well, we need to talk about idols because the Bible talks about idols quite, quite a bit, actually. I think, I think an argument could be made that idolatry is in a sense the, the central theme of the Bible. It is at least one of the Bible's most pervasive things. And the reason for that is because the Bible makes it incredibly clear that God is very concerned with worship. Our God is immensely concerned with worship, namely that we worship Him and no other gods. And that brings us to the truth that, church, anyone or anything that we worship that is not God, that's an idol. Anyone or anything that we worship besides God is an idol. And that's what we're going to explore together over the next couple of weeks. Today we'll talk a little bit about the nature of idolatry, and how to kind of uncover these things. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll, we'll talk about removing these idols and how, how do we deal with and get rid of our idols. But I want you to see this in the Bible. So hopefully you've turned to First Corinthians chapter 15. I've got part of it on the slide, very small. But I want to encourage you, as I do each week. Listen, ch- church, if what I'm saying is not in the Scriptures, it's just man's opinion, right? So find it in the Bible. And let, that, let those words remain in your heart. So let's look down and read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I suppose I'll read four verses. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Let's pray together. Father, I don't know what sorts of burdens and distractions that we all bring in here today. I know that we come from different circumstances and different sets of difficulties, different joys, different problems. But Father, all of us need to hear from you. So Father, I'm asking for help. Spirit of God, would you move among us? Would you open our eyes to see the beauty of Christ? Open our eyes to see the dangers of idolatry. We've been told that the Spirit has come to convict us of sin. So, Father, convict us of sin today. Help us to see ways and things and people that we worship that are not you. So, Father, to this end, as we come to your word, I pray that my words would fall to the ground, blow away. They can be forgotten. We need to hear from you. So let your word remain. Let it bear fruit in our lives and in our hearts, we pray. Amen. First Corinthians 15. I, I love this text. It's one that I had to maybe resist getting to earlier in the series because it's a clear gospel text that talks about the gospel being delivered to other Christians. Right? The church was a, it was a churches are made up of Christians, right? So the Church of Corinth, uh, Paul said he was eager to, to remind them about the gospel. Don't you you find that interesting? And the reason for that is because Paul was concerned not just that the believers there received the gospel, that was important, but that they would stand in it, that they would remain in it. Do do you see that there in the text? But I also want you to notice this phrase that Paul uses here in verse 3. How does he describe the gospel? He calls it of first importance. First importance. What do, you, what do you think that means? What do you think it means that the gospel is of first importance? Well, I'm Okay, the gospel should be of first importance in my life, right? Or, yeah, that's simple. The gospel should be the number one thing in my life. More important than, than all other things. Yeah, that's right. That's not always how it works, is it? Right? It can often be more difficult than that. I once had a boss or a manager who did not understand the concept of priorities. I remember we had a meeting and he gave us this big long list of all these things that were really important to do like four or five things and he said these are all your top priorities right and I'm like okay well which one is the most important he says all of them they are all the top priorities and I remember thinking how can four things be my top priority right that's like a list of important things I get that but which is the most important? How do I decide which to, fo- you know, which to focus on? Do you even know what priority means? I don't think you did, but we do this too. All right, have you ever had anyone ask you, what is your number one favorite movie? And then you proceed to list five movies, right? It's like, we, I don't want to decide, I'd rather, a, I'd rather have a group of favorites, but, uh, but I, I don't want to choose my favorite. You know, it's the same thing. You know, technically you can only have one favorite movie. I mean it's fine if you have a list of favorites. I got a list of favorites, but but what that means is that none of them has the top spot. Right? It, it, they all have to share the diluted honor of being just among your favorites. For many of us, that's how God and the gospel works for us. It's on our list of favorite things. It may even be at the top. But it has to share the award of our affection. Paul is saying the gospel is not on your top ten important things list, right? It's not, even, it's not on your final four. It is of first importance. C.J. Mahaney puts it like this. I quote, If there's anything in life that we should be passionate about, it's the gospel. And I don't mean passionately passionate only about sharing it with others. I mean passionate in thinking about it and dwelling on it, rejoicing in it, and allowing it to color the way that we look at the world. Only one thing can be of first importance to each of us, and only the gospel ought to be. That's how you really measure what's most important in your life. What do you spend most of your time thinking about? What do you you dwell on? What what consumes your thoughts? What consumes your emotional resources? That's what's most important to you. And we're not talking about what you say is most important. Anybody can give the right Sunday school answer when we're in Sunday school about the most important thing to you. What is truly the thing of first importance in your life? This week I saw a video by John Piper, and, and he, he put it like this, so I jotted down this quote. He said, I'm astonished at people who say they believe in God and then live as if happiness could be found by giving God Almighty 2% of their attention. That's how God is for, for most of us, isn't it? He, he gets some percent, but just a small portion. I mean, sure, we, we know the answer in Sunday school. What are, the, what are the priorities in your life, right? God, family, country, you know, football, right? Or, and we can, we can list it right in church, but how do you really live? How do you really live? If you only give God 2% of your attention and 2% of your thoughts and 2% of your worship, then guess what? God and the gospel are not of first importance to you. So, so the question for us is, what percent of our attention does he get? Perhaps a better word is not just attention, right? We have a lot of things we can pay attention to. We have to, you know, pay bills and go to work and cut grass and, you know, send in taxes, that sort of thing. But, but what about our affection? What percent of our affection does God get? Maybe you're a committed Christian and you're like, look, I give God Way more than 2%, right? That was, that's, that's for the folks who don't go to Sunday school. I, I, I give God like 38%. Maybe your life looks something like this, okay? You, I mean, you give God the biggest chunk of your attention and your affection, and you can say, you know what? Honestly, God is the top priority on my list. He really is. He's more important. God gets 38% of my attention and my worship and my affection, The question for us is, what percent of your attention does God get? What percent of your worship and your affection? And that's an important question, but really another important question is, what else gets your attention? What else gets your worship? Where else do you run to for comfort? Those things can be our idols. Those things can become our idols. And this brings us to the first point about idolatry this morning and that is idolatry begins when we drift away from the gospel it begins when we drift away from the gospel now for weeks we've been talking about how we even as christians have this this nasty tendency to to forget and to drift away from the gospel and yes when we do that we've seen we don't grow and right and that's that's problem that's a problem but but the stakes are even higher than that right it's 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 even more important than that because any time that we move away from the gospel, we move towards an idol. Any time you turn away from God, you are turning to something that is sinful. Any turn away from the gospel is a move towards an idol. Any time we drift, even if, it's, even if it's just for a moment, even if it's just the, at the end of a really hard day, we can drift towards an idol. Anytime that we look for some comfort, some satisfaction, some ultimate good in something or someone other than God, we're committing idolatry. That's what idolatry is. There's no other option. When you turn away from God, you are turning only to sin. You see, we often forget that you and I are worshipers. We're, we're professional worshipers. That's what we do, not because we're Christians, but because we're human. All humans God made us to know him and to enjoy him and he created us with the capacity to do so do you know why your food tastes so good because God created you with the capacity to enjoy food and be like my goodness who can make such food like this what kind of God is he like That's why sunsets are beautiful and children's laughter is so delightful. That's why we are inspired by a quarterback who can throw a 60-yard completion, right? It's because we were made to enjoy beauty. God designed us. That's why you have taste buds. So we can see and taste the good things that God has made, pointing us to him. God made us to know him and to enjoy him. And so he gave us capacities to do so. And you see, when we fail to worship God, when we stop worshiping God, we don't stop worshiping. We just start worshiping an idol or idols, right? We just choose something else to worship. This is, this is really how the Bible talks about the heart. We read this even in the Sermon on the Mount, that our treasure and our hearts are attached, right? Your treasure is what you worship. If it's, on, if it's on earth, right, it's going to fail you. But if it's in heaven, it will, it will last, right? God, our hearts are think about it like this. Our heart is the worship center of the human, all right? It is a, it's a worship organ. That's what it does. It worships. We are born and designed as worshipers. This is why no sane human being will be content to just stare at a blank white wall for his whole life, because God made us to crave and to seek out and to desire beauty. The moment that you and I drift away from the gospel, we begin to erect our own idols. They take all sorts of different forms, and they may be changing for us even on a day-by-day basis, but the, the truth remains. When we turn from God, we will always look for a way to fill that God void in our hearts. Our worship centers, our hearts are like a vacuum. They cannot be empty. They suck something in to love, and to worship. G.K. Chesterton wrote about this a while ago. He said, When we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. You see, our idolatry begins the moment that we're drifting away from the glory of God as we know it and see it in the gospel. The Bible describes the gospel as being the central focus of the glory of God, right? In the person of Jesus Christ. God is the gospel. Like, we see that in him. And so when we drift from the gospel, we're drifting to false gospels of false gods. We'll save that for another day, but we must go to our next point, which is that this is a constant problem. Idolatry is a constant problem for us. A constant, lifelong, repeating problem, right? Just like sinning, idolatry is not something that we just like quit, right? We don't we don't just graduate from it, out of it, when we reach some you know specific level of maturity, right? It's it, it's a constant struggle for us. One of my favorite places to see this is in the book of First John. Let me invite you to turn to turn there, First John chapter five. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in front of you. You can grab it, and pull it out. Make sure I'm not making this up. First John chapter five. I mean, if you've studied or read the book of First John, you know that the whole book of First John is about how to have a vibrant and rich relationship with Jesus Christ and all the effects that that has on your life. And after 105 verses on the importance of this rich, vibrant relationship with Christ. How does John conclude his letter? All right, what, what, what does he say? Well, you can see that in chapter 5, verse 21. He ends abruptly, it seems, with a warning. Chapter 5, verse 21, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Plural. 105 verses. He says nothing about idols or Buddhas or asterisks or golden calves or football. He didn't say anything about that stuff. But then when it comes to how really, I mean, what, what do you need to know to, to love God and to keep loving people? What does he say? Keep yourselves from idols. Is John changing the subject? Right? Did he get lost or distracted? Maybe he ran, maybe he ran out of this awkward ending. I, no, I don't think so. I think John is making the same point that we've been saying. That idols are a constant problem. And so we as Christians, no matter how strong and healthy and mature you are, we must all be on lookout for idols. This is a sort of a crude illustration, but it might help some of you, right? Idols are like zombies. They just keep coming. Maybe you've seen one of those video games where you just shoot zombies. They just keep coming, shoot idols. Wouldn't that be a great video game, right? Right? These zombies just keep coming. It doesn't matter. They don't ever stop. You just, they stop when you, you, know, when you quit, quit, right? Except unlike zombies, idols, they're not coming out of the woods or some you know, trailer, right? Idols, are, they come out of our hearts. They're constantly coming up out of our hearts. So we have to recognize the temptation to idolatry. It is an ever-present danger. It ends when we are separated from our bodies of flesh. Perhaps we could phrase it like this John is warning his readers. He's warning them be on guard, keep yourselves from idols. And perhaps we could think about it like this Has something or someone other than Jesus taken the title deed to your heart? Has something or someone other than Jesus taken the title deed to your heart? That is, is there something or someone in your life who has the lion's share of your heart's trust, your loyalty, your desire? Maybe this question will get you. Is there something or someone that makes you more excited than Jesus? Has something or someone other than Jesus taken the title deed to your heart? That thing or that person, that's your God. And that God's a false God, a fake God, an idol, a contender to God Almighty. Some of us might say, you know, hey, look, that's an easy question, right? I've given my heart to Christ. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. I've given my life to serving Him. I I build my life around Him. I I don't have any idols, no way. Well, we need to be careful about how we answer this question. John is warning us, be careful, look out for idols. You see, I think it's possible that we can give Christ the ownership of the property. We can give him ownership of our hearts, but then allow squatters. Allow idol squatters, right? You know what I mean? Like We may give God the ultimate ownership, but then we give all the practical, functional rights of ownership to other people and other things. Yeah, sure. I mean, when it's all settled, when it's all done, and all the dust settles, right? You know, Christ is your Savior. But the question is, for now, are you permitting another Lord to rule? Maybe you've given your life and your heart to Christ, and yes, He owns the title deed of your heart, but practically speaking, maybe marriage is your idol. I mean, functionally, right? No one would say that, but functionally, the way that you live... Yeah, sure, you would say, hey, look, I'm a Christian, but then look to my marriage or my spouse to provide all of my intimacy, all the intimacy, and all the comfort, and all the happiness, and all the security that my heart longs for and craves for. See, if you struggle with that, right, then I, I bet I know something about your marriage. You're frustrated. Right? You're probably really frustrated. You know how I know? Because your marriage, I don't care how great your spouse is, your marriage cannot withhold that burden. God did not create marriage to sustain that. It wasn't designed to do that. Only God can satisfy your deepest longings. Maybe comfort is your idol. Me time, right? Maybe, maybe it is all about comfort. If you're an American, there's a good chance this is one of those idols you got keep you got keeping in the backyard, right? Maybe you spend all of your time living for the weekend or living you can't, you know, you can't stop thinking about it. Maybe you're living for retirement or, or spring break or summer break or five o'clock or, or what, whatever it is, right? And so you save as much as you can so you can spend your money on it. And you can't stop thinking about it. And if and if somebody messes with your plans, right, watch out. <laughs> Uh, Maybe you've experienced it like this. Um, Maybe you're supposed to have the house for yourself, to to yourself. Wife and kids are going to be out grocery shopping or something. You had plans to to watch the game, and then they come home early. And you become a bear, right? What, What does that reveal about your heart? You're worshiping comfort it's because comfort is your idol. It's, it's your source of refuge, your, your peace. It's, it's what your heart longs for. It's, what, it's where you run to feel safe and to be made whole. And so when somebody gets in the way of that, you become a bear and anger explodes. You see, whatever you worship controls you. And what controls you is what you worship. I heard one author put it like this. What's the true north of your heart? The resting place for the needle of your subconscious thoughts and desires? That's your idol. What causes you to constantly lose your cool, right? What what really pushes your buttons? You find the idol under there. What is it that gives you the most joy? That's your God. Your car, your fitness, 401K, your team, your kids, your marriage, your house, the decorations, the garden, whatever it is, right? Whatever gives you the most comfort, your gun collection, your joy, that is your God. That is your God. You see, here's the thing. Our idols are much more deceptive and much more dangerous than a golden calf, right? Because with a golden calf, it's clear. It's obvious. Right? Our idols don't sit on mantles for us and, and you know, show off to the world what we worship. They're much more subtle. They, they live quietly in our hearts, undetected, right? They like to fly under, under the radar, that is, until they're disturbed, until you poke one, right? And th- that's, when, that's when we know what's going on. You see, any, anyone can confess that Jesus is Lord with his mouth. Anybody can do that. Judas did that. But the question is, who is the Lord of your heart? You see, God is much more interested in your practical theology than he is in your confessional theology. That is to say, God is much more interested in what your actions say you believe than what your words say that you believe. If your thoughts are constantly dominated, if you're constantly afraid and constantly thinking about, even maybe constantly praying about how your kids turn out, right? if, if, you're, if you live and die on the success or the morality or the decisions that your kids make, they may be your idol. Or maybe it's how your portfolio is doing or how soon you can afford that new phone. You see, that thing may be your functional God. When our hearts are dominated by anything other than Christ, that thing, that, that idol is slowly working to take over your heart, usually without you noticing. This is why it's so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Personally, I think this is why so many Christians are just miserable. They, if you talk with them, if you really get an idea of, of their involvement in church and what their walks with the Lord are like, they're not reading the scriptures, they don't, they don't really pray, they, they've got some bitterness at God or at the church or at some other person or, or whatever it is. You know, I think often it's because the functional God that they're worshiping is not a God at all. They're calling the Christian God, the God of the Bible, they're calling that God their God, but they worship some other God and then they blame all their idols' failures on God. They, 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 all their prayers and all their thoughts and all their actions, right? Because what we serve is what we worship. Right? All, all, all their actions are towards their idols and then they don't understand why God isn't answering their prayers. They might respond by praying more, by doubling down, Right? More likely we just respond by complaining. By the way, that's really a great way to tell what gods you're worshiping for the day. What are you complaining about? You can find the idol hidden in your heart. What do you complain about? Not getting the credit you desire at work? Not getting the credit you deserve at work? Is your declining health getting in the way of the active life that you need? Maybe good health is your idol. You see, the way the progression of the idol works is we take a good thing and then we make it a God thing. When a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing, it becomes an idol. Maybe this is why God isn't answering your prayers. In James 4, James talks about this. He says, You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, on what you worship, on what you love, yourself. You see, God will not help you chase your idol. He's not going to do that. Isaiah 42 reminds us, I am the Lord. That is my name. I, My glory I give to no other. My praise to carved idols. I will not do it. So many Christians, I think we have this backwards, demented faith that is really all about ourselves. We worship ourselves, but we try to employ God to help us get what we want, right? Because we're not that powerful. We've got some problems. We can't control some things, right? So we try to, you know, get God on our team and then, you know, because he can take care of the heaven part and give us the stuff we want and then we can be good, right? That's often how we That's often how we do it. We we use God for our own purposes. We subcontract him, right? We We, we try to get him on board and... We don't really get what we want, right? God frustrates us. This is why you may be experiencing so little spiritual power in your life. Because you're not worshiping the true God, you're worshiping a fake God. Because the God that you're worshiping is no God at all. It's an idol, a figment of your imagination, one that will burn with all of the created world. But this really just introduces the problem. This is starting to pull the mask off all this stuff that's going on in our hearts that, that we, don't, we don't really know what to, to do with. And that really brings us to a third point, that there's an idol behind every sin. There's an idol behind every single sin. Anger, lust, pride, all of our sins have idols behind them. Idolatry is really the very essence of sin. Think about, think about the first of the Ten Commandments. All right, number one, you shall have no other gods besides me. No other gods before me. Or think about the great commandment. You remember Jesus said the the great commandment? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Idolatry always breaks the first and great commandment. Every time. It's always violated. You see, when we give, what's the text say? How how are we supposed to love God? With what? All of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. So that means that if we give any of our heart, or any of our soul, or any of our mind to something other than God, what are we doing? We're breaking the first commandment. We're committing idolatry. Even when we love God with most of our heart, and most of our mind, and most of our soul. Just keeping a few idols on the side, just when we need them, like just on really bad days. It's idolatry. We pull them out on a bad day, kind of like that carton of ice cream you keep in the back of the freezer for that bad day at work. We pull it out looking, looking to comfort. You see, God is seeking our total allegiance. He wants all of our hearts and all of our minds, and he wants them all of the time. God intends that we run to him, not a carton of ice cream, right? God intends that we run to him on bad days. He is the God of all comfort. You see how anything can become an idol? Anything that you run to for comfort instead of God is an idol. Anything that captures your heart's attention above God, that is an idol, and it's behind every single sin. Flip over with me to the book of Colossians. One more text. We can see how this works. If you go a couple places to see this. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Paul helps us understand this this dynamic. Verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and then he says, covetousness, comma, which is idolatry. Do did you, did you, did? Did you see what he did there? Paul, Paul is associating covetousness with idolatry. He's saying idolatry is it's connected with wanting things too much. Wanting wanting things in an inordinate way. When we we want things more than we want God. That is the very heart of our sin. That's That's the reason all the sins we commit are because God is not satisfying enough to us. Sin is what we do when we're chasing after one of our idols because God is not enough. Sin is what we do when we're chasing after one of our idols because we're not satisfied in God. We can always trace our sin behaviors and our attitudes back to, to, to the idols of the heart. So, so this is a constant reminder to us. This is why God is not primarily concerned with your behavior. Right? He, he's after your heart. Parents, grandparents, if you have children that you are caring for and instructing, this is why we do not primarily go after behavior. You can have good kids that hate God. You can behave and despise God in your heart. You can do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. So we as parents, we got to aim for the heart. Shepherd and instruct your children's hearts, not just their behavior. There's going to be a lot, as we saw recently, there's going to be a lot of Pharisees in hell. You can behave for the wrong reasons. I think this is why for many of us, we fail. We try to tackle that big sin struggle in our life. We fail just because we're trying to manage the behavior. We try to, you know, we've, talk, we've talked about this a lot here, right? We, 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 we try to resolve or we promise or we set some sort of outward boundary, right? I put the, you put the, you know, the blocker on your computer so you don't look at anything bad, but nothing in the heart's changing. So you'll just find some other, some other outlet. For many of us, you know, if we focus on behavioral modification, we'll fail because we have to go after the idols of the heart. You know, the Christian life is a lot like gardening. I'm not really into gardening uh, <laughs> work isn't that fun. You know, so, so I'm not really into gardening. But I, know, I know many folks are. But, you know, I do understand this, right? You've got to pull the weeds by the root, all right? You've got to pull the weeds up by the root or what will happen? They'll just grow back the very next day. You ever had that? You try to reach down and you pull and it kind of snaps off. You're like, well, that didn't do doing good and that'll be there tomorrow, right? Th- that's, that's how it works. We have to pull our idols up by the root, you see, we know, just like any good gardener, that even if we pull the weed up by the root, another one's going to grow back right next to it the next day anyway. It's because for the Christian life, we must constantly be pulling the idols up out of our heart as they come up. That's why John's instructing us to be on constant lookout for idols. And next week we'll spend some time, you know, talking about more in more detail, identifying and, and uprooting our idols. But I don't want to wait until next week because we've got a whole week to, to live in between that. we got to deal with these idols now. And so let's, let's think, you know, the, the idols can be these really slippery little boogers, right? Hard, hard to, to get a hold of. They can constantly change forms and trick us and lie to us. And, you know, constantly they'll go out one door, then they'll sneak back in the back door of our hearts, right? So I want to give you a couple questions, three questions that I think can help identify the idols in your heart. I'd encourage you, this takes some soul searching, so I would encourage you to jot these questions down and then go home this afternoon or tomorrow morning and and get alone with the Lord and try to answer these questions in a spirit of prayer and, and humility. So let me give you three questions that can help you identify the most Uh, prevalent idols in your heart. And they're really getting at the same thing in different ways, but uh, let's think about it like this. Question number one, what do you turn to for refuge instead of God? What do you turn to for comfort instead of God? You know, our overeating problem is not primarily a health problem. It's a heart problem. Because we run to food for comfort instead of the God of all comfort. Same thing with entertainment or shopping. What do you run to when your heart is sad? Where do you run when you need security or safety? Where do you run to be understood and heard? What do you turn to for refuge and comfort instead of God? A second question is what do you want so bad that you're willing to sin in order to get Maybe you want respect from your kids so bad that you'll scream at them to get it, right? Respect is a good thing. The Bible teaches that children should respect their parents, right? That's a good thing. But if you want respect so much that you're willing to sin, that good thing has just become a bad thing, an idol. What are you willing to sin in order to get Maybe you want attention from the opposite sex so bad that you'll make all sorts of compromises, emotional, physical, relational, to get their attention. What do you want so bad that you're willing to sin in order to get? A third question is, what do you want so bad that you're willing to sin if you think you might lose it? All right, what are you terrified of losing? Is it, is it your money? Maybe it's a chance to advance your career. Or maybe you're willing to lie in order to keep your good reputation. We've been talking a lot about confession, right? So often, we're not willing to confess our sin because we'd rather hold on to the appearance of goodness. And if we, if we tell people we're bad, then that'll, that'll mess up our reputation, right? What are you willing to hold on to so much that you're willing to sin if you think you're going to lose it? Maybe you're anxious about your future. You're afraid that, that you won't be secure. What are you willing to, what do you want so bad that you're willing to sin if you think you're going to lose it? Your kid's safety, right? This is what leads us to anxiety. Your health, your toys. Okay, for, for now, I want, I want to encourage you, try to get one idol in your mind. One idol that perhaps some of these questions, maybe, maybe you've got one that's kind of at the top of your heart and just, and just kind of Plug that away in your mind. If you, if you don't have one, I'll just give you one. Comfort, right? It's probably your idol. <laughs> if you're an American, right? If you're human, that's, that's something we all, we run to stuff instead of God, right? The stuff he made instead of the God that he is for comfort. Okay, so, so get, one, get one idol in your mind, right? And now I want everybody to look at me. Now that you've got one idol in your mind, A God that you have worshipped instead of the one true living God who is to be praised forever and ever. I've got bad news for you. Idolaters are going to receive the wrath of God. It's the very next verse that we see in Colossians, right? After Colossians chapter 3 verse 5, the very next verse is on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming for all who practice idolatry. And so do you know what that means? It means you've got two options. It means you either got to buckle down and bear up to the awful, terrible, pure wrath of a righteous, angry God who hates sin and will not give His glory to an idol. You've got to bear that. Or you need a savior who bore it for you. You need to run to a cleft where you can hide from the wrath of God. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. You need a savior. You need the gospel. So here's how the gospel works for those of us who recognize that we're idolaters. Even after 20 years of walking with God, still idolaters. You see... Through the law, God reveals, our idolatry reveals ways that we are sinners. We are first commandment breakers, law breakers. And the news of the gospel, as we've seen, is to repent and believe, right? So we need to repent and believe. That means we are to repent, to to put away our false gods, to leave them and run to Christ, to leave the things we look to for comfort and go to the God of comfort. I mean, your idols can't satisfy you anyway. They never do. That's why we have to go back. That's why we've got to go back again and again. They don't satisfy us. But when we run to Jesus, who is God, what do we see? This is the man who worshipped perfectly. He always obeyed God. He always kept his rules. He always worshipped him rightly. So we're compelled to stop trusting in our own ability to even obey. Stop trusting in our own ability to worship God perfectly and to trust in Jesus. Just think of it. Jesus died the death of an idolater so that you wouldn't have to. The son, the one true God died for all the times that you and I have worshipped false gods. False little petty gods made by God so that we could live with him forever. Hell is going to be the continual pursuit of false gods and never satisfied, right? There is, God is not there. Trust in Jesus. Run to him. And when by God's grace, when God by his spirit reveals to you another idol, another idol that has popped up in your heart, don't despair. Just do it again. Repent, believe, repeat. We'll talk more next week about how to repent of our idols. But now let us remember, repent, believe, repeat. We can run to him again and again and again. Will you join with me in prayer?